Amen. Let's take our Bibles this morning. Please turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and we're studying through the book of Mark, of course, but I like how Matthew records a couple details that we don't find uh, necessarily in the book of Mark. And so we're going to look there today, Matthew chapter 22. We'll also be looking at Luke chapter 10 as another parallel passage of this. Matthew chapter 22. I've not heard a children's choir sing out like that in a long time. They were singing the top of their lungs, and it's that little one, Jared, who sang the loudest. You see him? Right from his toes. I don't know, little body like that. He was singing right out. I love it. And so praise the Lord for that. Be in prayer for Brother Roberts this morning. They're just starting church at Garland Line Baptist Church, and uh, he'll be preaching there this morning and back with us tonight. So be in prayer for him. Matthew chapter 22. Let's have a look there at the scriptures. And uh, if, if parents are wanting, we, uh, the children's choir sang right before the message. And so even if we edit, we edit that down for the television program last next week, they'll likely be on the television program. And so that's kind of neat for kids to see themselves on TV, you know. And so if you get to watch that uh, on cable 10, I believe it is, uh, here locally and, and around the area. And so if you have cable TV and the kids want to see themselves, you can see that. Or, of course, on our YouTube channel or our live stream channel or wherever you might go. But I know it's a big deal for kids to see themselves on TV. It encourages them a little bit. And so they're, they're, they should be on there, even if we edit that service down a little bit to make the time requirements, all right? And so a couple weeks ago, well, two months ago now, and, and I just want to thank you. I'll just tell you a little funny story about the television ministry. Uh, I want to thank you for praying for my eye. The last two weeks, I've made incredible strides. And so for a couple months there, I wondered if it was going to heal at all, but then all of a sudden it started clearing. And, and so I have a little bit around the outside still, but I'm seeing much, much better. And uh, for all those on the roads while I'm driving, I'm sure you're thankful about that. But uh, I, I really do appreciate, sincerely appreciate your prayers for that. It is healing quite nicely. I'll see the doctor this week and prayerfully and hopefully I'll get in for surgery on the same day. That's what my hope is. That's what my prayer is. And so Dr. Uh, Siva Kumar has been very good about saying, we'll even meet you at the hospital after work today and we'll do the surgery. So I'm hoping that's what happens. So I'd appreciate your prayers for that. I appreciate it. But when it all happened a couple months ago, it happened on a Sunday morning right before I got up in the pulpit. And then uh, I went to the hospital after church. And I went in there and I went through the triage and I'm sitting in the waiting room and they had the cable, local cable 10 or whatever it is on. And they had a local preacher on there. I don't know if it was, I think Elmer Baptist is on there and, and such. And people were angry. And I could hear him whispering, why are they having, why, what are we, we're sitting, why are we watching this? And, why is and they were angry about what he was saying and everything. And I knew in five minutes I was up next. <laughs> and I was sitting there with my head down. I thought, oh boy. I said, if they start looking around and see, because I, I mean, I was wearing a suit and everything, and I thought, I am in trouble. They're going to lynch me right here in this hospital. Well, at least I got medical care, eh, man? And so I was a little nervous, but whatever happened, I, I don't know if they shifted our time. I did not come on next. And I, I, I mean, I, I knew what I was preaching, too, the week before, and I was a little bit nervous. But, oh, well, they need to hear it, amen? We need the Word of God. And so I'm thankful for the Bible. Let's look at Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be near the end of the chapter, verse 34. Verse 34. And of course, this comes from Mark chapter 12 is the parallel passage, I believe. And we, I read through there. And, but I found a couple things in Matthew that I stood out to me. And I, and I thought that would be something that would help us understand the context of this message. I'm going to give you the title right up front. Compassion, compassion, love, in action. That's just a very simple definition of what compassion is. 
We might have sympathy or empathy towards somebody, and you might say, I feel sorry for them, but compassion is actually when we take that love and we put it into action. We actually do something about it. And the Lord will illustrate that for us with a parable this morning. And so let's look in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34. It says, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, I I like that. I don't know why. I just like that phrase. He put the Sadducees to silence. Every once in a while, we run across modern-day Pharisees and Sadducees, don't we? And we love to see them put to silence by the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you can't argue with the Word of God. And Jesus is the living Word. And he says, so the Bible says that the Pharisees saw that he put the uh, Sadducees to silence. They were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked a question tempting him and saying, Master... Which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Heavenly Father, bless your word now, we pray. Magnify your word and magnify your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we see in this passage of scripture how the very words of God silence both the Sadducees and now the Pharisees. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to silence those things in our heart that are against God. Those things that would bring questions up against the holy God and his son, Jesus Christ. And may the word of God speak to us in such a way that it put those things to rest today. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a people of compassion. Lord, help us to look upon others in pity and in sorrow, in those in need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 9 that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion. For they were sheep scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. And God, I pray that you would help us, like Jesus, to do something about it. And because of his compassion, he went to the cross of Calvary and shed his blood for their sins. Oh God, speak to our hearts today and move us, we pray. May the spirit of God fill me. I surrender to you and I need your help. And Lord, we'll thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you will, to Matthew, you're in Matthew 22, but look back a few verses and look at verse 23. I wanna give you the context this morning so we understand what is going on. The Bible says that, when the Pharisees had seen that the Sadducees were silenced. Well, what was going on? And you'll notice in verse 23, it says, The same day came to him Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection, and asked him. And so the author, Matthew, gives us some context of what they're about to ask. He says, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And that was some debate among the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, the Pharisees did. And so isn't it interesting, though, that when they are teamed up against Jesus, they can become allies for a time. The Bible says that on the day that the Lord Jesus Christ was betrayed, that even Pilate and Herod became friends for a day because they had a common enemy. So though the Pharisees and the Sadducees were at odds about this doctrine, the Sadducees and the Pharisees would team up to try to tempt the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, with that background in mind that they do not believe in a resurrection, they say unto him, Master, 
Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up seed unto his brother. Now there were with us seven brethren. And the first, when he had married a wife, deceased, and having no issue, left his wife unto his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, and the seventh. The last of all, the women died, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said unto them, Ye do err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. But as touching the resurrection of the dead, have ye not read that which was spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine." The Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection felt like they could trick the Lord Jesus Christ by giving him an impossible scenario. We talk about the doctrine of the kinsman redeemer and that's what this is all about. If, if a man were to die and not have a child, his brother would take his wife and seek to raise up a child and if he died, then it would be passed on and so on and that's what the scriptures say. Up to seven different husbands this woman had. It seems like this might have been a real scenario. The, the Sadducees were not ones to tell parables, but they said there was one among us that this happened to. Can you imagine? I don't think for a moment if, if my wife and I got married and we were not to have children and I were to be killed in some sort of accident, that she'd want to marry Wade. I can guarantee you that as a matter of fact. But can you imagine that kind of thing going on? But that was a Jewish custom. We read about Boaz and Ruth along that same lines, and that's, he became her kinsman redeemer. He was a near kinsman. He wasn't the closest, but the other gentleman turned it down. And so they tried to trick Jesus with this impossible scenario. They said, if there is a resurrection, and all seven husbands rise from the dead, who will be her husband? And Jesus says, you don't, you don't know the scriptures. He says, you do err, because in the resurrection we are like the angels in heaven. There's neither marriage nor giving in marriage. By the way, till death do us part. And he says, you don't understand the scriptures. And he was able with the very words of Christ, the words of God, lay their controversy to rest. Well, the Pharisees were empowered by this, weren't they? They thought if the Sadducees can't get them, maybe we can. And so the Bible says there in verse 34 that the Pharisees, when they saw that the Sadducees had been, uh, when he heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. And when they gathered together, the, the idea there is that they are conspiring. What the Sadducees did was a pretty good idea, and we thought it had some merit to it, but obviously it didn't work. And so how can we trick the Lord Jesus Christ? As a matter of fact, the scripture says they set out to tempt him. Now, they were not tempting him to evil. They, the word tempt here does not mean to lead into sin. It simply means to put him to the test. They were going to try him. And so I want you to notice, uh, first of all, this morning, some things about this passage. And we won't spend a lot of time on the first point. We'll think more about the second and the third. But I want you to notice by way of context, first of all, we see a sinister inquiry. We see a sinister inquiry. They begin to ask the Lord Jesus Christ a question. Master, verse 36, which is the great commandment in the law? 
Now, you might think that he would turn to the Ten Commandments. Of course, number one is, there is one God, and thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we know the Ten Commandments that are given. But in honesty, if you were to read the Scriptures and come to Exodus chapter 20 and see what we call the Ten Commandments, God actually gave hundreds of commandments, not just one. Somebody said that there are 643 commandments in the Old Testament for the Jewish people to live by. 643. It is reduced in the New Testament, they believe, to just one, the just shall live by faith. Isn't that good news? That through our faith, we become obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ and we desire to submit ourselves to his leadership and we seek to obey his commandments simply because we have faith and trust in him and he transforms our lives by his grace. But think of all the commandments and if you read the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20, you'll find they don't actually stop there. I don't believe there were just 10 commandments on those tablets. We see those 10 laid out so carefully, but if you read on the scriptures, they just keep going and going and going. Moses was on that mountain a long time as God inscribed his law upon those tablets of stone. The Pharisee says, which is the greatest commandment? The Lord Jesus Christ would quote Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. Thou shalt love the Lord God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. As we consider this sinister inquiry this morning, I want you to notice, first of all, their motive. Consider their motive. Their motive was to accomplish what the Sadducees could not. Their motive was to tempt him to try to trip him up. I always get an amusement out of the scriptures whenever I see the Pharisees conspiring against Jesus. When I see Judas, even from last Sunday night, we talked about the betrayal during our Lord's table service, and the Bible says that Judas uh, conspired with the Pharisees and the scribes and the rulers of the law to betray the Lord Jesus Christ, and Jesus himself said, you didn't need to do this. I was going to the cross anyway. The Bible says that they rose up early in the morning to see how they might take him subtly. How early in the morning must you get up to fool the Son of God? That they might take him by craft, it says in another portion of Scripture. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees over and over again conspired, and now they thought we can fool him on his doctrine. And so their motives were wrong. We see in this sinister inquiry, not only to consider the motive, consider the messenger, Notice what they did. The Bible says in verse 35, then one of them, which was a lawyer. Of all these Pharisees, they found the one that was a lawyer. They found the one that spoke the most eloquently. The one who would examine his statement and say, well, this won't get me in trouble. I'm going to word this in such a way. And perhaps the other Pharisees got together. The Bible says they gathered. And and perhaps they said, well, here's what we need to ask Jesus. And the lawyer says, well, I wouldn't word it quite that way. Maybe I would think that through and maybe I would word it this way and maybe leave that part out and and don't speak of that clause and, and let's be very careful how we word that. So they went to one of the smartest, wisest men of the Pharisees, the most educated. They used a lawyer to make their argument for them. I want you to consider the motive and consider the messenger, but consider the magnitude. Master, which is the great commandment in the law? Let me say this, if God said it, it's important. Every jot and tittle, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. 
every word. You say, what about the, the, the word the or the word as or the, these small words? I, I'm telling you, you take those words out and see how it reads. It can sometimes change the entire thought of a scripture. It can change a doctrine as we read through the passages. And so they were very careful. And they said, which is the greatest commandment? Not knowing that they're all important. But the Lord Jesus Christ answered him wisely. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And the second is like unto it. Love thy neighbor as thyself. Now let me ask you something. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if Jesus answered that question in any other way? I, I, I mean, in my flesh, I might have set off a war. I might have said, well, let me tell you about the resurrection. And that would have really made the Sadducees all upset. Let me, let me tell you about some other obscure doctrine. Let me tell you uh, about leadership. And let me tell you about how the man is the head of the woman. How many of you men got that verse underlined in your Bible, by the way? Be careful your wife doesn't see it. I'll tell you that. We like those verses that sometimes puff ourselves up. But Jesus was very careful. It was an important answer. He says, here's the most important thing. Love the Lord thy God. He says, here, why? Because on all those things hang all the law and the prophets. If you don't love God, you won't obey the commandment not to have any other gods before you. You'll have all kinds of gods. If you don't have a love and respect for the Lord, if you don't worship him, if you don't lift him up, murder doesn't mean a thing to you. Because his creation is not important. Those people that he made in his image no longer have value. Abortion will be okay and rape will be okay and murder will be okay if you don't love God because everything else hangs on that. How many of you say that's true today? This world has rejected God and look where it's headed. Look where it's headed. And so we see in this sinister inquiry, I want you to consider the motive and the messenger Consider the magnitude. But let me give you a second thing this morning. Notice a straightforward instruction. Jesus gives his answer in verse 37. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The Lord gives really a very simple answer, doesn't he? Very straightforward instruction. He says, first of all, and we need to notice this and mark this in your hearts and minds today. He says, here's what you need to know. Here's the answer to your question. Here's what lies all or hangs all the law and the prophets. It's this. You need to have a preeminent relationship. What is the number one relationship in your life? Here is the greatest commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Mark would add to that the word strength. Is that the number one relationship in your life? You know, we often, we often struggle in our walk with God simply because that's not the number one relationship. Because we have not made it preeminent in our lives. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. There's the word prominent and there's the word preeminent. Prominent means one among many. 
I don't know if you saw Anita doing backflips down the hallway today, but she was so excited because Austin Matthews got his second hat trick in two nights. Did you see that? He is a prominent hockey player. But preeminent means the one and only. We are to have a preeminent relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are to worship God with our hearts and our souls. And I try to be careful. We're never perfect, but I, I try to be careful when we lead worship in the auditorium that we're not, we're not talking about a whole bunch of other things. We're not giving announcements during this worship time, but instead we are just trying to focus on him and on his word, and we read scripture, and we pray together, and we sing together, because that is our preeminent relationship. And not only do I want you to know it, I want the Lord to know it. He must know how important to us. It is a preeminent relationship. I want you to notice what he says. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. Look at this. This is the first and great commandment. The word first there means it's the chief or principle in influence or honor. It's not talking about a numerical thing in the Bible. It's not saying if we were to lay out the commandments that this is number one and this is number two and this is number three and we just read them in that order. He's saying, no, this is the chief or principal thing. This is what is most important, that we give honor to this idea that the Lord Jesus Christ has taught us today that we are to love the Lord thy God with all our heart and soul and our mind. I want you to notice it's a loving relationship. It's a loving relationship and also it's a laborious relationship. I think the loving relationship is quite obvious, and so I'll leave it at that, that we are to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind, but it is laborious. You say, what do you mean by that? It takes work. It takes work. Let me ask you this, and let me put it in perspective for you this morning. Have you ever had to question if God loves you? There are times where we get hurt sometimes, right? And we question, God, where are you? God, you really love me. And we sing with the songwriter, does Jesus care when I've said goodbye? And he yells from heaven, oh, yes, I care. Ah. We've never had to wonder. If you ever wonder, does God love you? Turn to the Gospels. And find in there the very gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, his blood. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's never been a question whether or not God loves us, but do we truly love him? And so we must work at it. It's difficult. But we must, we must commit ourselves to loving the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. And, and the, the heart is the very seat of emotion, but the soul is with our whole being. And our mind is, is to center our thoughts upon him. The Bible says this, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. What are you thinking of? Often that thing we love the most is the thing we fill our hearts and minds with. And friend, let me encourage you to fill your heart and mind with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a laborious relationship because it puts an emphasis on our love for God. Boy, we're such an imperfect people, aren't we? God can love you perfectly, but to say I love him perfectly is such a reach. But that's what God is desiring from us, is our unwavering love. 
We are to love with all our heart and our soul and our mind, and it takes work. So we see a preeminent relationship, but we also see in verse 39 a practical reminder. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You see, a proper relationship with God translates into a proper relationship with others. If we love God like we ought to, we'll also love his creation. We'll love his people. We'll love those who he died for. And so we see, first of all, an image or a reflection, the word like. He says the second is like unto it. The word like means to have a reflection of something. Your love for others reflects your love for God. Think about that. How well you love somebody else is a reflection of your love for God. He's the one that said the second is like the first. It's an image of it or it's a reflection of it. But we also see that from that it's an implication. There's an implication made. It will also take work. How many of you know that there's some people that are easier to love than others? Have you ever, have you ever noticed that? Here, here's the thing, and I'm not trying to downplay anything, so be careful. We're commanded to love everybody, not like everybody. Okay? There were some people in the Bible that Jesus got pretty angry with, wasn't it? He called those Pharisees a generation of vipers. He cast money changers out of the temple. He was angry. But he loved them. He loved them. Sometimes we have to work at that. We may not like everybody, but we are to love them. You've all gone to family reunions. You know what I'm talking about. You love them, people. But you don't like everybody. We are called to love as Christ loved us. I think about that love this morning. It's a sacrificial love, isn't it? Christ laid down his life for those that he loved. He gave his only begotten son. Friends, do we love like that? Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives even as Christ loved the church. When we see the example of love in a marriage relationship, we are to love as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. It's a good reminder for us today that as we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we are also to love others and it takes hard work. What we receive, we are also to give out. But I want you to see thirdly this morning a simple illustration. Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is another parallel passage of this portion of Scripture. And Luke records a little bit more. He records a little bit more. In Luke chapter 10, look, if you will, in verse 29. Luke chapter 10, verse 29. So the lawyer stood up in verse 25, and he said to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, in verse 27, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as himself. But in Luke, he doubles down. Verse 29, but he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, who is my neighbor. Who am I supposed to love? Who is it that you're talking about to love my neighbor as myself? Who is my neighbor? Is it the fellow that lives right next to me? 
Is it my family that I've gathered around about me? Is it maybe even a stretch to say my coworkers and friends that I see day to day, those that I run into in the marketplace, maybe those in my own town, is, is that my neighbor? Who is it that I'm supposed to love? And Jesus answering said, a certain man, I'm in verse 30, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, take care of him and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. If we were to ask the question today, Who is my neighbor? The Lord gives us a very simple illustration, doesn't he? He talks about a man that was traveling and fell among thieves, and the Bible says a priest, a religious man, one of the covenant of the children of Israel, would walk by but pass, cut a wide berth on the other side. And then a Levite of the priestly tribe would do the same, but a Samaritan, one who the Jews would insult, Consider them to be half-breeds. They would go out of their way to avoid going through the area of Samaria at whatever cost. And yet it was he who showed compassion. In this simple parable that the Lord Jesus Christ gives, he asks the question, who was the neighbor? And the lawyer answered correctly, he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, go And do thou likewise. The title of our message this morning is Compassion, Love, and Action. And I want you to see a couple things about that from this parable. Number one, it's a matter of compassion. If we are to love our neighbor as ourselves, it is a matter of compassion. Verse 33 says, he showed compassion on him. The word compassion in this passage literally means to be moved by sympathy and pity. Sometimes we think compassion means to be moved to sympathy. That's not what it means. It means to be moved by our sympathies and pities. So when we look upon a situation and we feel sorry or we feel sympathy or we are brokenhearted for somebody, we actually do something about it. We're moved by it. Often we see something on the news and we see a cause that comes up and we wonder how can we help? Oh, that's terrible. What could we do? We rarely do anything. The cry comes out. We see those, we see those children. Remember, you remember when I was, I remember growing up in the 80s, and Ethiopia was in terrible straits, weren't they? The famine in the land. And I remember World Vision Canada and all the rest and all the charities that were, they were putting pictures of those children. Remember the flies? 
and their distended bellies from malnutrition. They didn't have clean water, and it was such a pitiful, pitiful thing. And you wonder, what can I do to help? And then they'll say, send the donation. And they went, oh, yeah, never mind. Now I was eight years old, right? Give me a break. I had no money. But that's often what we do. We see the problem and our hearts go out, but we're not actually moved to do anything about it. That's what this word compassion means. Can I suggest to you that perhaps the priest and the Levite had sympathy? Perhaps they even walked by and went, oh, that poor soul. But what can I do about it? But it was the Samaritan that was moved by his pity to show compassion. It's a matter of compassion. Matthew chapter 15, the Lord Jesus Christ says in verse 32, then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and now have nothing to eat and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way. There's the word of the use of compassion. Jesus didn't say, I, I feel bad for them, or I have pity upon them, or I got sympathy upon them. He says, no, I move to compassion. And what did he do? He fed, in this case, 4,000 people. Because he didn't just feel bad for them. He actually did something about it. Compassion is love in action. It was a matter of compassion. Sometimes it's a matter of cost. In verse 34, we read, and he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Hey, those cost him something. And set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morning when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said to him, take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. He took it upon himself. You see, genuine Christ-like compassion may cost us something. It cost Christ his life. Cost many of the disciples their freedom and eventually their lives. My son-in-law Matthew and Emily are serving at the First Baptist Church in Bridgeport, Michigan, and today is their friend day. And they said, here's what we want to do on, on friend day. We want you to invite somebody. And in the past, they said, we've, had, we've invited people for friend day and we set up the gym and we have you know, soup and sandwiches out and we'll have a big thing together. But here's what we want to do this year. We're going to just have you invite your friends and then we want you to take them out to dinner. Whether you do it in your home or you take them to a restaurant. And the pastor said this, if we're going to show compassion on the multitudes, it may cost us something. I don't think he was trying to bankrupt or hurt anybody. I think he was just something trying to teach a principle. Sometimes it costs us. Show compassion. Can I say this? Think about what it might cost them if you don't. It may cost eternity in hell. It's a matter of compassion, a matter of cost, and simply a matter of compliance. Look at verse 37. He said, he that showed mercy on him then said Jesus on him, go and do thou likewise, simple obedience. We are to do the same. You know, Jesus said on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. A love for God that translates into compassion and love towards others. I, sometimes I struggle to understand. I remember being in Bible college and going through some of the world religions and the things that were going on, and I heard stories of monks that would 
sequester themselves way up in the mountains, take a vow of poverty and a vow of silence, and for years and years they would just read the Bible and they would pray and read the Bible and they would pray. And I'm not against reading the Bible and praying. They sequester themselves and they live their entire lives in silence. Never tell another about Jesus and never help a soul on earth. And some would say, oh, look at their love for God. How can it be seen if they don't love others? If it doesn't move them to compassion. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16 says this, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Let me me just slow down and read that again. Listen carefully. This preaches the whole message, these two verses. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us. We know he loves us because he gave. He showed compassion on us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? That's quite a measuring stick, isn't it? If we shut up our bowels of compassion, how can we say we have the love of God within us? Let me close with this. Would you take a moment and examine your heart? Have you ever said, have you ever said, well, I don't feel sorry for them. Have you ever said, I I don't have any sympathy for them. Have you ever said they're getting what they deserve? Sometimes in jaded moments we talk like that, don't we? By the way, you better be thankful you're not getting what you deserve. By the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he saved us. We have nothing to boast about. If we've ever used those things, I I don't feel sorry. They're reaping what they sow. They got what they deserved. What did they expect was going to happen? Where's our compassion? Here's here's one of the greatest verses of compassion in the Bible, and I'm done with this. But God commendeth his love toward us. In that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for us. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to show the compassion to others that Christ showed for us. The two greatest commandments, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind, and the second is like unto it to love our neighbors as ourselves. Oh God, speak to this hard heart today. God, I've been guilty of not having compassion, of saying those very things. Well, I'm not going to feel sorry for them. They're getting what they deserved. Oh God, I'm so thankful I'm not getting what I deserve. Speak to us, we pray. Bless this invitation time in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
How is your love for God transforming your life to love others, to show compassion? Every once in a while, I think God drops somebody right in our midst just to see how we will, how we'll react. How will we show God's love? I remember years ago at a funeral, it was Annie Corbett. If you know, remember Annie, Annie had been confined to a wheelchair for several years and had a lot of medical issues and things. And I, I asked the Lord over and over again, Lord, what, what do I preach at a funeral like this? It's so different than any other funeral I'd ever done. And the Lord spoke to my heart and the, the gist of the message was that I believed that Annie was placed among us for us to show compassion, for us to show the love of Christ to others, for us to behave like a church ought to behave. Do we have that kind of love and compassion for everybody? There are some among us with obvious needs. You can see it. You read the prayer requests. There's, there's cancer and there's disease and there's, there's heartache and there's pain and there's death and there's sorrow. And we, we know the obvious, but I'm telling you, there's people in this room today with broken hearts that you'll never see. An inter- internal struggle going on that they need your prayers about. They don't feel comfortable saying it out loud, but we are to have compassion on them and show them the love of Christ. Maybe there's one year today that said, Preacher, I'm not sure I'm saved. If I were to die, I don't know that I know Christ. I'm not covered by his blood. I've not been forgiven of my sins. But I want to know him today. I know that he's had compassion by dying on a cross and shedding his blood for my sins. And I'd like to be saved today. Could we help you? I'm not going to embarrass anybody. Nobody's looking around. Would you slip up your hand? Pastor, I need to be saved. Is there one? 